All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome uh, to the next webinar in our series, Collaborating for a Better World, Unleashing the Power of Encryption for NGOs. I am extremely delighted uh, to be your host today. But before we start, I do have a couple of very quick housekeeping notes for you. Uh, we are going to be recording today's session and sharing it afterwards. We will also be taking questions at the end. So please uh, don't hesitate to add your questions to the Q&A section. Uh, we're going to do our best to answer all of them, but just in case we run out of time, I will answer uh, them with the, the team here and share afterwards. Uh, so without further ado, let us proceed with today's topic and meet our speakers. I'm Aaron. I'm the head of product marketing here at Treasurit. I started just a few months ago, uh, born in the United States, but currently living in Europe, uh, in Luxembourg, and, and very happy to be so. Uh, I'm joined by Jason Keller from Vistant, as well as Jason's, uh, James Eatonley from NetHope. So thank you for joining us. Uh, just to kick it off, why don't we go ahead and do some introductions, tell our audience a little bit about the work you do. Uh, we can kick it off, uh, James. Hi there, and thanks, Aaron. Uh, my name is James Eatonley. Uh, I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at an organization called NetHope. Um, NetHope's a US-based nonprofit. Uh, we are about 20 years old. Uh, we're a member-driven nonprofit. Uh, our members are, uh, the 60 or so largest uh, development, humanitarian and conservation uh, nonprofits worldwide, um, working on a whole range of things uh, from climate change to displacement to protecting people in conflict. Uh, <clears throat> and that hope I lead on something called the Digital Protection Program, uh, which is our cybersecurity program for our members and our broader ecosystem, and where my role essentially is to help large international nonprofits to be more resilient, more respectful uh, digital actors when they uh, collect data. Uh, my background more broadly is uh, cybersecurity recently in nonprofits, but uh, in government, uh, retail, telecoms, software, uh, long before that, going back a decade or two. All right, great. Jason? Uh, good morning, Jason Keller here. I work day-to-day -day for a company called Vistant, uh, where I manage our client program, the Digital Apex program through USAID. Outside of that, I'm responsible for the country's, or pardon me, for the company's digital strategy. And then I also serve on the board of the National AI and Cybersecurity ISAO. Um, previous to that, I was a federal employee and then also spent eight years in the U.S. military in the special operations community as an intel analyst. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, it's It's been sort of enlightening having a chance to prepare for this with the two of you. Uh, I've been learning a lot as I, I did just start working at Treasurit, so it's been a, a great experience. Uh, at Treasurit, we focus on the end-to-end -end encryption around storing, signing, sharing uh, digital files, and that could be internally, externally, across time zones, internationally, it could be a picture, a video, a document, you name it. So when we talk about the challenges for NGOs, what is really, in your opinion, the primary challenges that an NGO faces from a cybersecurity perspective when talking about these files? Jason, maybe you can kick us off. Yeah, uh, I think the, the short answer is, is that we find many NGOs are 
possibly the most at risk in the broader community. Uh, it's something that's not talked a lot about uh, across all the sectors, uh, but at the same time that their resources are probably the lowest. Uh, so they're facing nation state level actors with a budget that most small businesses uh, would probably be happy to have, or, or pardon me, and vice versa. You know, most small businesses probably have more um, so it, it's a very significant issue and it's one that's affecting, you know, how, uh, democracy is spread, how journalists get information, uh, out of harsh areas and a broad range of other issues. James, uh, what would you add to that? I think that's the right answer. The, um, the problem is big and the tools are small, right? Um, nonprofits are a, a, a huge and diverse space. Uh, and, you know, many of them do things that are potentially not particularly commercially interesting to attackers or uh, where they're not working with at-risk communities, but, um, but many of them are. Um, some nonprofits work with the most vulnerable communities uh, on the planet, people who just by virtue of talking about uh, problems, governance problems or human rights problems in their country uh, are at risk of, of targeting or um, of imprisonment or, or potentially even death, um, or communities who've been displaced, who are fleeing uh, conflict or uh, human rights violations, potentially in large numbers, uh, being discriminated against. So the um, the data that many NGOs hold is is extremely sensitive and extremely interesting to many state and, and non-state actors alike. And the tools that they have for protecting that data tend to be limited. Um, we've seen a, a crunch worldwide in the last few years, you know, particularly given sort of uh, austerity and, and economic challenges in charitable giving. Um, and the funding that NGOs have to uh, invest in technology and, and by virtue also to invest in cybersecurity come out of a, an increasingly shrinking pot of uh, funding which is heavily restricted and you know not unreasonably we want uh, a, a large proportion of the funding that we give to um, sort of social impact causes or public good to go go directly to the mission um, but it also makes it very hard to allocate funding to make sure that that mission is undertaken with with integrity and with safety so um, I joke sometimes with colleagues in the private sector that it's a bit like playing a video game with all the difficulty sliders set to maximum and, and I think it's true you know the um, the challenge is huge the tools are small um, and then the way that NGOs work uh, is uh, is very complex um, they work, uh, they have very porous boundaries, they often have large networks of volunteers and partners, the data flows are very messy. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as Jason alluded to, uh, there are an increasingly large stable of, uh, of threat actors, of, of states, who have very sophisticated tools for targeting them and, and frankly can just out-invest them and where the, the barrier for entry to attack is constantly decreasing. You know, if you follow the news, you'll see the wave of, you know, spyware, or ransomware attacks all of these are supported by a huge commercial marketplace either a, a gray market or a, a, an underground market but actually also a commercial market of tools that um you know five ten years ago we might have talked about you know state actors attacking sort of nonprofits or corporations and thought of you know very wealthy high-income countries actually now it's it's open to you know almost any uh, state or even non-state actor who are a party to conflict and, and we're seeing that you know, that um, that sort of targeting of NGOs has been a feature of almost every recent humanitarian crisis or conflict. Yeah, I, you know, my big takeaway after hearing that and having a chance to talk to you guys is uh, people in your position with your titles have to be even more creative and innovative uh, than, than presumably others who maybe have a bigger budget to work with. 
so this next question is a it's a bit of a softball for the two of you I know but for the audience it, it uh, helps you know continue setting the stage today and you know some might say well doesn't SSL just make this problem go away since encryption is already in place and uh, you know we know what the answer is but I, I think hitting the nail on the head and really calling it out will help uh, for the rest of this conversation um, so. Uh, James, why don't you answer first for this one? Sure. Um, yeah, of course, it makes we can end the web. No, I'm kidding. Of course, it, it doesn't make the problem <laughs> that way. Um, the um, <clears throat> different security safeguards do different things. Um, you know, when we say sort of TLS SSL, we're talking about the the ubiquitous encryption that we use day to day when we interact with uh, websites or, or other resources on the internet. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes if you talk to a cybersecurity professional, they'll talk about encryption at rest and encryption in transit, you know, clever math that protects data that we're working with when we send it somewhere in flight or uh, when we leave it somewhere, when it's stored on a hard disk or a you know, solid state drive or somewhere else where it's at rest. Um, both using, you know, techniques that have been around since the, the 70s and 80s and that are a ubiquitous part of our modern life. They're great tools. Um, they defend against certain things. If someone's sitting between you and, and your online bank and you've got, you know, the padlock in your web browser, you're using TLS, uh, SSL, um, then you can be reasonably sure that somebody isn't listening to, into what you're doing if, you know, provided they're not investing, you know, a huge amount of money into unpicking that <laughs> complex math. Um, but I, I kind of alluded earlier on to, you know, th threat actors. We use these, we use these pieces of terminology in the cybersecurity space to think about the, the engineering, the composition of attacks and, and the, the landscape around us. And, and we often um, talk about threat models. We talk about the things we want to defend against so that we can we can plan around them. Um, and uh, of course, you know, if, if somebody, if, if the, the data in between you and your online bank is encrypted, but somebody's on your laptop, it doesn't really matter. Um, they can read it straight out of memory. They can read it off the disk. Um, so uh, you have to match the safeguard to the problem, and that means uh, encryption that potentially follows data around, and it, it means uh, it means multiple layers of defense that mean that if if one safeguard is compromised, others aren't. Um, and so, you know, no, of, of course, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Is the short answer <laughs> to the question? Yep, uh, Jason, would you have anything to add? Yeah, I'd just put on my old national security hat and say that there's a reason why organizations, especially highly developed uh, security offices, have classified information. You know, we start with unclassified, we go up to confidential, secret, top secret in the U.S. government context, and it all comes back to concepts of defense in depth. You know, uh, if you want to protect something that's in the house, you start out with a fence out on the porch, then you've got a camera, <laughs> then you've got a lock on your doors, then you've got a lock on that bedroom, and then the data is in a safe. Well, if we really strive to keep people safe in these harsh environments, uh, in these high threat environments, then we need to do more, especially with that data that is the most sensitive. Yeah, I love that analogy that you use and and I would apply it, you know, to like my own personal life, right? There are some things that I could care less if uh, Jason or James knows, uh, but there are other things, uh, maybe the pictures of my children that I don't really want anyone to be able to access. Um, so, okay, the next is really about risk. And so we've started talking about it a little bit. James mentioned the threat modeling. Um, so what is the risk for an NGO that does experience a cybersecurity attack resulting in these digital files being compromised? Uh, Jason, why don't you uh, start us off on this one? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's very broad because at the end of the day, the NGO community does just about everything that you can imagine. It kind of reminds me again of the military days where, you know, the U.S. Army is just such a massive organization that they have just about every type of business process you could think of. Uh, whether it's an organization doing an investigation against human rights abuses and they've got a source uh, and that source can be disappeared, if you will, uh, or you've got um, a NGO uh, example, the Special Olympics were hit a few years back, uh, where I believe it was their New York chapter and uh, organizations got in and were sending out uh, spoofed emails to their um, donor list and affecting the relationship with their donor. And anybody in the NGO community knows if you lose your uh, monthly and uh, annual donors, uh, you've got a big problem. So it really goes across the scope from the financial risk uh, all the way to the real human life, uh, putting people in danger. Um, that's the risk that exists in this space and uh, encompasses just about everything that you can imagine. James, uh, anything you would sort of tack on to that? I mean, I, th I think that's the right answer. You know, at, at their core, um, any nonprofit has to be a commercial organization. It, it has to uh, make funds for what it's doing, however it does that. Um, and, you know, if you're watching the news cycle at the moment, we, we can see the commercial consequences uh, of, of large scale cyber attacks against businesses, which, you know, start just with uh, availability problems that you lose access, you lose the ability to transact. You know, maybe that means you lose the ability to take donations or, you know, sell goods, which which make you money to invest in your program. Um, but the consequences then become, you know, uh, more relational consequences. Um, any nonprofit exists, you know, as a result of the good graces in which it's held by its donors, by public institutions that fund it, by, you know, philanthropic partners or, or other sorts of partners. Um, and those relationships are, are built and brokered based on trust. Trust that the, uh, the sort of time and treasure that it expends are going to be used wisely uh, in order to produce uh, social impact, in order to produce public good. And uh, when we essentially lose control of, of what it is that we're doing, when we, we cause harm that we didn't mean to or, or when we're ineffective, we, we lose that trust and, and, and not unreasonably. Um, so, you know, the, the second problem there is trust, which which many nonprofits have invested, you know, decades or, or, or even longer in, uh, in 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 building up. And, you know, it's it's a colleague of mine said once that it's, you know, it's like rock climbing. It's uh, it takes a long time to get up and it's very quick uh, on the way down if you look at <laughs> But but that you know I, I think the kind of the north star for many of us then is is absolutely the point Jason made which is that um, the range of things nonprofits do is vast um, you know it includes running water and sanitation systems in refugee camps it includes protecting people who are fleeing conflict physically protecting them um, protecting women and children from from various sorts of abuse working with you know human rights defenders in countries that really don't like human rights defenders or you know journalists or um, activists it includes governance programs that are uh, trying to ensure you know equitable democratic governance in in countries worldwide or monitor elections um, it includes you know more things really than we've got time to discuss in the webinar but where the consequences for individuals and communities are extremely real when things go wrong. Um, you know, there are many crises, unfortunately, on our on our planet where there are, you know, populations who for religious reasons or ethnic reasons have been persecuted within the borders of their own countries for decades. And where if we lose data on them, we have a very real opportunity to cause very serious harm to those individuals. And, you know, qu quite aside the, 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 the trust piece, um, uh, 
or even the physical harm piece. You know, we're organizations who have very deep roots in human rights, um, who hold principles of do no harm extremely dear. Um, and, you know, the consequences to us, to individuals and our ability to execute our mission, if we if we break those principles are, are in some instances, you know, pretty unthinkable. Yeah, it it, uh, it really does remind me of uh, a webinar that we did recently with uh, Nobel Prize winner Ethan Gutman, uh, who talked a lot about going into these uh, crossing borders and going into different countries and uh, the risk that is run if if the data is exposed, the files are compromised, uh, whether you're a reporter or someone who was talking to the reporter. Uh, so that really resonates. Um, so. We know factually that regulations, compliance, politics impact NGOs in a lot of different ways and cybersecurity. And so the question for you guys is, if you had a magic wand that you could wave and make one change, uh, what would that change be? Um, and I, I keep going back and forth. I've lost track of who who got to answer first last time. So let's just uh, start with James and... <laughs> We'll, we'll go from there. Well, this, this of course, is a very tricky problem. And, you know, we, um, we've been talking, I suppose, mostly so far through the lens of, of cybersecurity, which, of course, thinks about uh, safeguarding assets and resources so that we can continue to do, you know, use, useful, necessary things. Um, but for many organizations, these are also compliance problems, uh, compliance problems, which are sometimes, you know, cybersecurity compliance, where we have regulations that say that we have to do those things for legal reasons, far, far beyond, you know, our sort of moral or pragmatic inclination to do so. Um, but also which uh, relate to other principles of, you know, good or fair information processing. It's, there are very few countries, I think, UNCTAD tracks 190 something countries of whom 130 something have have data protection legislation. And, um, you know, data protection legislation is slightly broader and says that, you know, far from, far from just safeguarding data, we also need to use it in a way that's that's fair and respectful. And, and that means all sorts of things from communicating how we use it to giving people rights over it. But frequently, data protection legislation includes uh, constraints on how we can transport data across borders. And, and in Europe, you know, you, you watch the Schrems uh, legislation, this has been a, a pointed issue for many years that when we, you know, move data sort of sort of downhill, as some people will say, from, from Europe to, to third countries, um, it loses protection. And, and um, you know, whatever your view of the, of the Schrems litigation or these frameworks, uh, almost every one of, of uh, almost every sort of developed data protection framework has some treatment of this problem. Um, which you know intellectually is 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 a good thing, but very complicated. Um, and if you're a if you're a multinational, particularly if you're an NGO, um, and you're working across borders, um, you may have dozens and dozens of different uh, bits of regulation that you need to comply with. Um, and some of them are less progressive. You know, some of them will say, "Don't take data outside our country's borders, because we want to leverage it for economic benefit." Or you know, and I mean very few legislative frameworks are quite this open but because we want to surveil it because we you know would really quite like to keep tabs on what it is that you're doing um and you know just in terms of cost just in terms of administrative overhead uh, if you're a complex organization this is messy so you know my magic wand i'd love to make that go away <laughs> i'd love to have a, a unified framework of you know equitable uh kind of you know socially cohesive uh privacy legislation that is you know fair for everybody and, and works across borders which I, I suspect we're a little way off from but you know in the meantime there are other solutions that we can use to try and simplify the problem yep just just a little ways off from that um jason what would you uh what would you wave your magic wand and make happen that's a hard one. You know, if I could do it just immediately, I would say just uh, creating a CIO in CISO shop. 
uh, for essentially all of the different NGOs that we work with that have uh, people at risk. And that's just the derivative of the next thing that I'll say is, is uh, we need to try to look at opportunities to build in requirements to keep data safe and to keep uh, operations safe uh, from cyber attacks into as many funding vehicles as possible. Um, there are countless organizations that provide support to other NGOs from the development community to foundations and others, uh, and then all the corporate social responsibility organizations that are out there supporting different NGOs. The more that they can say, hey, yes, we want to help you digitize. We want to help you do the business that you do better uh, with technology. But then we also want to protect those things. Uh, and that's becoming even more relevant uh, as organizations come online and uh, more threats are encountered every day. All right. Well, uh, I think now we're going to stop with the ping ponging um, and, and get really specific uh, about these questions. So this one is dedicated for you, James. Um, understanding and getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, if you could talk through and describe a little bit the solutions that you've seen NGOs implement to mitigate the risk that we've been discussing today. There are a whole variety. I mean, um... Uh, and some technical and some non-technical, you know, uh, actually picking up on something Jason said, and and I'm, I'm sure we'll dig into this in, uh, in further questions, uh, you know, part of the solution to these problems are, are social or communal, you know, that we align together, that we work together for better outcomes, because it's a, it's a difficult problem that's outside the ability of any one organization to solve individually. But, um, you know, in terms of the technology, um, NGOs are very much like normal businesses they use you know email calendaring tools word processing um most of them will use productivity suites you know their 365 suite or uh, google workplace or, or something like that um and most of those platforms come with some kind of encryption based in um you know they almost all come with other security safeguards um but coming back to the question that we were chatting through earlier the um you know sort of a, a rest and in transit question um Typically, they leverage this type of encryption where, you know, from, from point to point between my laptop and between the cloud data is encrypted. Um, and when we think about those defense in depth models, when we think about uh, particularly some of the more challenging contexts in which we work, it doesn't it doesn't always cut it. Um, NGOs are actually well, fairly early adopters of the cloud in many instances, um, often for cost reasons, because you know it, it sort of reduces the um, sort of capital expenditure of their of their broader IT programs. Um, it's quite good in many ways. It means they benefit from you know quite up to date modern safeguards and sort of you know well integrated sort of threat hunting capabilities in their cloud. Um, Often they're not using some of the more sophisticated things in cloud platforms, you know, data loss prevention tools or, um, you know, some of these kind of more sophisticated uh, sort of uh, cryptographic techniques, um, you know, again, again, also often because of cost. Um, we, uh, like any industry, will we'll have our own tools that are um, sort of line of business tools. If you're a health NGO, of course, you're going to have patient record management systems or, um, you know, systems for sort of, uh, you know, dispatching uh, staff in, in crises if you're you're sort of an operationally deploying uh, NGO in that, that sort of fast to moving environment or if you're working longer term you're probably gonna have data collection tools for working with, with communities and uh, gathering information on what they need or where they are or what needs fixing um, some of these tools integrate cryptography in other ways um, you know so some of our more sophisticated tools um, 
sort of our data layer encryption, you know, going back to Jason's uh, metaphor of the house, you know, you think of your, um, you know, the, the the doors and windows maybe as your sort of your perimeter network, your firewalls, your maybe your, your transport layer encryption. Um, you, you know, you, you lock your valuables in a safe and, and, and in the world of data encryption, that's, you know, it's perhaps encryption that follows the data around itself, whether, you know, at a sort of record level or at a file level, data is encrypted. So even if your laptop is, is compromised or even if your mobile device is compromised, the, the, the data is sitting in, a, in an encrypted silo where it's, it's less useful to an attacker. And we do have tools like that. Um, they're not ubiquitous, they're, they're not integrated, that, that kind of cryptography is not integrated into most, most of the tools that we work. And, you know, of course, there are a whole realm of, uh, of different cryptographic techniques of homomorphic encryption, various, you know, promises with tools like blockchain or, um, you know, other, other kinds of privacy preser preserving technologies, whether or not they're strictly speaking cryptographic and, and, and those show promise. Um, but they're not they're not widely implemented. I think for most most NGOs, the state of the art currently is is a relatively traditional sort of at rest and in transit encryption, often leveraging you know good sort of cloud tools that that have it uh, integrated end to end. You know, which is which is good and it's absolutely um, tech that we should be adopting. But it's um, it, you know it doesn't necessarily put us in a in a great position to be able to respond to this sort of you know emerging storm of threats that we see with the kind of landscape that we were presenting in answer to some of the earlier questions. What's interesting so, about what you said from my perspective is even though I'm pretty new to Trezor and I've only joined a few months ago, I've been digging into the data and like talking to customers and uh, whether it's an NGO or not an NGO, what you said really resonates as far as the adoption of these productivity tools that don't always go as far as needed when it comes to the security uh, which is often why we end up having these conversations and they become customers of Treasurit. Uh, it's also why from a strategy perspective, we've integrated with Microsoft and some of the other tools out there so that you can have the productivity, but also have the safety. So everything that you just said really aligns with what I've been seeing uh, as I've been onboarding. Um, this next question is now for you, Jason. So you're a bit more intimate and familiar with Treasurit uh, compared to James. So if you could just talk through a little bit uh, around the decision-making process and describing what led to the choosing Treasurit as a way to mitigate the risk that we've been talking about today. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think I highlighted before, you know, I wasn't quite around when we first started our relationship with Treasurit. I'm still a little new, uh, like yourself, Aaron, but at the end of the day, you know, we have uh, some customer sets that are, uh, you know, engaging with aggressive organizations, threat groups, uh, whether they be domestic to themselves or uh, when they're traveling abroad. And uh, their data at rest, especially sitting on their laptops, phones, and others, uh, is absolutely something that, you know, can put their physical lives in danger, uh, but also the folks that they're working with. So that's one start. Um, outside of applying those tools, uh, we definitely spend a lot of time on training as well. Uh, getting training to the individual uh, employees across the organization, just in basic information security, obviously critical. Uh, but then when we're adopting tools like Treasurit or otherwise, uh, making sure that we're training people up to show them how to properly employ those tools. 
because if it's just sitting on the laptop and not being used, uh, as we've seen in other situations, it's not doing much to uh, help the security situation. So you not only have to provide tools, but you've got to get adoption. And adoption, one of the biggest pieces is going to be training. And then second from that is going to be the leadership and how they're putting a focus on uh, information security. And it's got to start from the board level of the NGO, flow through the CEO or the executive director, uh, and then the other responsible parties from there. Yeah, you know, I think... Um... For all SaaS, you know, companies, you could say usability is critical, um, but in particular within cybersecurity, you know, there's often this trade-off between, you know, trying to make sure it's user-friendly and trying to make sure it's secure. Uh, and, and that's an area where, you know, I, I think companies really need to focus in order to ensure the adoption, the ease of use. And uh, I know it's top of mind for us at Treasurate and probably other companies as well. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. So we got two more minutes. I think we can squeeze in the last question and then I'll go to the Q&A and see uh, what the audience has for you. So this last question is... Uh, you're both very seasoned and experienced gentlemen. Uh, if there was one lesson related to the conversation we've been having today that you've learned in the past, the hard way, that you'd like to help people avoid, what would that lesson be? Uh, James. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, maybe kind of tying many of these threads together, it's a difficult problem for nonprofits. Um, it's outside the ability of any one nonprofit, you know, even nonprofits who are blessed with uh, sort of unrestricted funding or discretionary funding to out-invest attackers. Um, the bottom line really is that we only win together. It's a team sport. Um, we have to align, uh, we have to integrate, we have to work through community and in quite a structured way. And, and that, you know, Tom Brown for me at NetHope, we've been, we've been, we've been building communities of nonprofits around technology issues for 20 years. Um, you know, for us, one of our flagship projects is a, um, a, a thing called NISAC, you know, Jason mentioned sort of ISAWs earlier on, um, which are structured communities that band together to share information about threats and attacks in order that they can respond more effectively and then do other things, do group procurement or, or offer other services to their members. And um, uh, one of our flagship projects at the moment is building one of these for the humanitarian ecosystem, which, which currently has no convening mechanism, no integration, no way of sharing information about attack and defense in any structured way. Um, in order that they can be stronger and, and better together. Um, there are lots of ways of, of working together and, and aligning. Uh, ISACs are just one of them. We, we think that's a pretty good solution for this particular community of nonprofits. Um, but I think I think the team sport dimension is is one of the most critical things. This problem is not going to get any smaller um, in the next sort of you know two, three, four, five years. Um, it's not going to go away. Uh, and, you know, for anyone who's kind of looking at the size of the mountain already and wondering how to climb it, uh, get some friends, find a group of people who are already tackling the problem, join the rest of us. Um, or if you're, you know, another actor in the space and you're trying to work out how to make the problem smaller, um, you know, come and invest in our climbing mission. Um, and, uh, and, and it will make the problem more malleable uh, and make it more likely that we get to the top of the hill. Yeah, that's a life lesson. I mean, I feel, I feel like I could say that to my son about anything. Um, all right. Uh, how, how about you, Jason, anything, uh, that you would share as a, a lesson learned? What I would say is engaging in the conversation now versus later, whether whatever your position is within an organization, if 
you are cognizant that your organization is facing risk, which I am certain that they are, uh, you know, starting the conversation internally and sharing what you think needs to be done, uh, that we need, you know, the organization needs to make investments in XYZ uh, with regard to the technology stack and keeping it safe. Awesome. Um, outside of that, I would say it would be be humble and ask for help. Um, we are a community. Uh, there is a real NGO community. And while some uh, may be risk averse on how they interact with other organizations and how they reach out, how they share their story, I would say it's absolutely vital to do that in this space. Again, we have nation state level actors, highly advanced actors uh, going after these organizations and through organizations like uh, the Global Humanitarian ISAC, uh, our Digital Apex program, and a wealth of other resources that are out there. There's ways to get help. All people have to do is raise their hand and say, I'm willing to work with you uh, to get something done, to keep my operations flowing, uh, to keep our beneficiaries safe. Uh, there's people out there that are willing to help and all you got to do is stand up and be willing to accept it. All right. Well, um, you know, thank, thank you both uh, for going through all this. I'm going to pull up the Q and a right now and just see who from the audience has a question for us. Okay. It looks like we've got uh, one question uh, that we can squeeze in. I know we're, you know, three minutes over. So we'll take one and we'll we'll follow up with everyone afterwards. Um, so the question here is, how will emerging technologies or generative AI impact NGOs and cybersecurity? Uh, so I, I think, you know, the whole world is talking about this technology. Um, what, what would you guys say in relation to NGOs and cybersecurity? Maybe James, you can kick us off sure um i mean as with any emerging technology these things are opportunities and challenges right and uh you know the the challenge of the opportunity is harnessing it wisely um many nonprofits that we're working with at the moment are trying to figure out how they uh you know how they embrace these technologies and their missions to um you know re reduce cost or increase the um scale and and scope and effectiveness of what they do which which you know is is great um but it's difficult to do that. It's it's difficult to work out how you um, uh, how you em embrace emerging technologies with sort of unique unique risks um, without you know kind of introducing uh, more harm than uh, than the good that you're doing. And um, you know that that problem remains pretty open with the the, the sort of current generation of, of AI and machine learning technologies. And you know from sort of biases when making judgments to all sorts of intellectual property issues to you know how how appropriate how trained how how tailored uh how tested some of these technologies are you know particularly when they're, they're developed uh sort of in the in the global north and you know they're not they're not trained on uh, uh data from you know communities where they're, they're often being used it's it's very tricky uh to to use them well um and sort of alluding to some of the 
uh, questions and challenges we were talking about before with, with, with resourcing, getting the governance right in nonprofits to, to find the balance between innovation and responsibility is really difficult. Um, mm. and, you know, we sort of distinguish between, you know, the, the sort of the cybersecurity risk and sort of, you know, other sort of, you know, compliance and ethical problems. And this is a whole minefield across, across those domains. But in terms of cybersecurity, you know, we, we sort of, you know, you know, people will sort of say things about, you know, chat GPT at the moment, writing really effective phishing emails. And well, yeah, that might be true, but it's, for me, that's not, that's not really the point. It's um, the the scale and speed of, of solutions fundamentally affects their quality. Um, you know, when we sort of invented the ability to, to weave cloth more effectively using machinery, it, it didn't just mean, you know, more shirts. It, it meant a fundamental change in the way that workforce uh, uh, kind of worked, you know. And it's the same with this, you know, the, the as, as an attacker, um, types of vulnerability, types of technical flaw that were very difficult to identify and exploit five or 10 years ago that required very sophisticated individuals who were highly skilled. Um, you know, I, I, I worked in attack for many years and, you know, logic flaws or uh, kind of authentication issues in, in servers have, have historically been harder to, to sort of exploit in an automated way than, you know, bugs like sort of SQL injection, things that are very sort of have patterns easy to recognize with basic logic. It's no longer the case. Um, mm -hmm. You know, even now, the sort of current generation of AI and ML is is uh, is taking bugs that were previously difficult to exploit and making them much easier. Um, and what that means is the bar is much much lower for attack. Um, we have a you know a colleague at Cisco, Wendy Nather, who 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 has this great line. She she will she will often repeat that the game used to be you know you don't need to run faster than the bear, you just need to run faster than the other hiker, and it's no longer true. <laughs> and it's, it's absolutely the line. Um, you know, you can now, in a way that you couldn't five years ago, attack every host on the internet or discover flaws in every host on the internet or increasingly exploit every kind of bug with a button click. You can generate the code, you can automate, you can run at scale. And, you know, attack and defense always run in these cycles where attack develops something and then defense catches up. But And, and that's the cycle we're in at the moment where attack is, mm -hmm. is, is ramping up. Um, and AI, you know, ML, all of these tools represent opportunities for defense as well, data analytics and other stuff, but it's um, it, it's going to be messy until that cycle catches up. And it's, I don't think it's quite in sight yet, particularly for organizations who will for a while have a subsistence level relationship with the, this technology, which is inaccessible to them and difficult to license and hard to use. Yeah, it, it's a new world, that's for sure. Um, Jason, what, what would you say, uh, if anything, and then... Yeah, so on this topic, I would uh, switch to the adoption piece. So if your organization is spending $10 on IT, uh, you, you need to have spent money on security, on your data privacy program, um, uh, on building secure APIs, etc., before you can take the step to adopting AIML, if I can go in and create a injection attack and change your data, the tool that you're using, I have no uh, hesitation on being able to change the results of those tools. So <laughs> that's a critical piece. And then second is, is that AIML uh, has its own flaws baked in. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of that coming out uh, around the adoption of chat GPT and other tools. Um, so we, we've we got to keep up on that, whether it's uh, a physical world hack to shut down your um, driverless car or uh, breaking in the back door, changing your data. So that way your AI is has heavy biases against certain ethnic groups. Um, all AI in it. At the end of the day, I 
the adoption of AI and ML introduces new technological risk to the organization, and that has to be understood uh, before it's truly and gainfully employed. Uh, and then second to that, uh, just on the attack side, I have just been incredibly intrigued on to as to what tools have been built out with this, uh, as James noted, you know, just automatic scanning tools that can identify, uh, you know, what is the easiest target out there uh, to go after, uh, in, you know, from a range of IP addresses. Uh, it, it's really scary on that end. And then uh, with the um, antivirus tools that we've got now, they've actually, you know, shown that we can edit malware and introduce noise into malware uh, to get past antivirus tools. So um, while there's a lot of opportunity in these spaces, people need to understand that there's also new risks coming out uh, each and every day and that people are learning how to exploit those risks. Uh, so we need to kind of band together and see what we can accomplish uh as a community to to halt these problems yeah i think that's spot on and um i'd just like to one more time thank the two of you for uh not only joining the webinar and talking to me but all the time we had to talk prior to this webinar it's been you know a real pleasure uh thanks everyone who joined uh i think that's a wrap for us and so uh be on the lookout for uh, the recording and don't hesitate to reach out if you do have uh, follow-up questions. I think that's it. Thanks everybody. Thank you.